Dr. Derry. That's D-R-D-E-R-Y. To see and share our amazing animations and find out more information about us, the show, as well as links to our social media, go to noisefuzzleshow.com. We are grateful to our sponsors, including Access Health Louisiana and the End the Epidemic Initiative, who are working to bring equitable health outcomes to everyone they serve. Hope, any last words? Stay well out there, folks, and continue taking steps to keep yourself and your loved ones healthy. That includes exercise, a good diet, getting adequate sleep, and seeing your health care providers regularly. And protect yourself and others by getting the COVID-19 vaccine and booster, wearing a mask, and social distancing wherever possible. Remember, health is a human right. Para no cumplir lo que prometes Apenado y afligido Yo más y dices que te arrepientes Tú me dices que me amas Que lo nuestro es para siempre Mientes Con patañas, con regalos, con cartitas Quieres convencerme Dices que lo sientes You're listening to KBOO Portland. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the 33rd Annual Cascade Festival of African Films throughout the month of February with a collection of films by African directors from over 16 nations. Films will be screened at Cascade PCC, Hollywood Theater, and virtually. Full schedule and location information can be found at africanfilmfestival.org. That's the 33rd Annual Cascade Festival of African Films showing Africa through African lenses happening February 3rd until Saturday, March 4th in celebration of Black History Month. Full schedule and location information can be found at africanfilmfestival.org. to KBU Community Radio. My name is Emma Lugo, and I use she and her pronouns. And today we are talking with James Dixon about the new play, Ronald Reagan Murdered My Mentors. James, welcome to KBU. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Um, so let's start like to start right off the bat by telling us about this fabulous new play that I know is starting up really soon. Give us the details. Of when is this play opening? Where is it happening? How can people find out about it? And then let's let's go into talking about the play and kind of learning more about you and about this this performance. Uh, yeah. So the play uh, Ronald Reagan Murdered My Mentors is written by uh, Julian Jimenez. We open February 9th. And our show is being uh, hosted out of the Backdoor Theater, um, which is uh, which is located in the back of Common Grounds Coffee. Um, it's the former home of defunct theater. Um, we're very happy to be stewards of that location with Fuse Theater Ensemble. Um, so yeah, this amazing play um, takes place across three decades. And um, the uh, playwright uh, actually modeled this this character, the main character Lost, after himself. He found himself uh, growing up in the 90s 
early 90s and not having anyone to talk to about his sexuality and, and what he was feeling and, and exploring. So he called the suicide hotline and and connected with a queer a gentleman who was on the other line trying to, you know, of course, it's a suicide hotline and <laughs> it's meant to, you know, people call for various reasons, but, you know, this this kid just wanted someone to talk to. Um, he could have very well saved his life, to be honest, but uh, I mean, it says a lot about you know, looking for mentorship in place in un, in unusual places when we don't have parents to kind of guide us to this type of life that we're living. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, thank you. And um, when when is it going to be performed? Uh, what are the what is the run date for it? Oh, the run dates. So we run uh, February 9th through the twenty sixth, and that's on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights at 7 30 and also sundays at 3 p.m so there'll be a total of 12 performances um short and sweet so yeah great thank you um so james uh, tell me a little bit about yourself let's let's talk about you first uh who is james dixon um well i uh i've been performing in portland i'd say for about maybe about eight years now at least i lose track of time um, I started doing theater much later in life. So um, Rusty Tennant, who's the artistic director for Fuse, walked up to me one day and, and said, "said do, do you recommend a play at all? And I said, well, I'd, I'd love to see Booty Candy happen. And that's that was the first play I directed here in Portland a couple years ago. Um, he, and Rusty gave me that opportunity to direct the play. Um, didn't have any experience in it. Um, I knew as an actor what I did did want to see on stage and I knew I knew what I didn't want to see on stage so I just kind of filled in the gaps from there and that's how it all started um it's a, a bit of a scary job you know being a director can be very exciting and 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 also be very lonely in different ways because you you're stuck with all these thoughts and ideas and you know one thing I love about being a director is um collaborating I, I love collaborating with my artists Every person in the room has a voice uh, in this process, and to be honest, I I feel like I've been so so lucky to have the team that I have uh, working on this piece. Who are some of the people who are in uh, Ronald Reagan murdered my mentors? One more time. Who are who are the other actors that are in the in the production of Ronald Reagan murdered my mentors? Oh, okay. So we've got uh, Nick Angola, who's playing Lost. We have uh, Anthony Harden, who's playing Telephone, who's the the guy on the other end of the telephone. And then our ensemble, our Dead Gay Men's Chorus, uh, is played by Sean Kirkpatrick, Ray Davis, Angie Tennant, and Sam Gordon. And um, I'm pretty, I feel so lucky to have this group of folks. One thing we, about Fuse Theater Ensemble, we are a, an LGBTQIA plus uh, organization. And sometimes with casting, that can get a little that can get a little weird for folks. So we we just ask that people be able to authentically portray these characters, and it just really opens it up for people of any race or any gender identity to just kind of come in and express themselves. And that's been been well received so far. So I really feel really lucky to have the team that we have. This is um, the. We just had a World AIDS Day um, a couple of months ago. It was the, um, I think it's been almost 40 years now since AIDS first really became something that was really visible in our community. What are your memories of HIV? Do you, do you have any memories from when it first happened? How did you come to learn about the AIDS narrative? That's a really good question, actually. My, my, I, I've been affected by AIDS. My my cousin died of AIDS. My cousin, um, her name was Jean, and uh, it's really interesting because growing, I'm I'm born in 1980, and so me falling into my queer identity happened much later in life. So my introduction to AIDS was was somewhat heteronormative. Um, Because it, I mean, happened to my cousin, but it was also such a stigma because, you know, her, she received it from one of her partners who had spent some time in prison and just all the stigmas that come with that. Um, I just didn't have the proper education about it. It was 
described as something that was dirty and unclean and uh, which was completely problematic at the time. Um, but later in life, you know, once I, I joined the military, I'm a veteran. I joined uh, just before 9-11 and that just skyrocketed, skyrocketed me out of the South <laughs> where I'm from over to the West Coast. And that's when I really started seeing um, you know, when we think about sex positivity and, and and queer spaces, I'd never experienced that until I moved to the West Coast. And that's how um, I essentially got my education. When you think about mentorship, um, a lot of the AIDS movement, it's about us taking care of ourselves and having folks in our community to to give us advice and, and hold us up. So, um, it's, I mean, I, it's interesting to talk about this now. I remember being a, a kid in the 90s and keeping my HIV status results in my pocket because people would use that as a reason to dig at you or or something like that. Uh, it's just a completely different culture at the time. Um, but I just feel really lucky um, to have educated myself early on and built community um, just so, oh, here comes Nick, just so we know a little bit more about um, how to interact with each other and, and how to how to have healthy conversations around HIV and, and AIDS. Hey, Nick. I feel like hey, I'm, <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, you're fine. Nick, uh, please tell us about yourself. Hi, um, I'm Nicholas Hungola. Nick, um, I am a 45-year-old gay man. <laughs> I'm an actor. Um, I am uh, from the West Coast. I was born in the East Bay of Berkeley and raised there for most of my life. And um, I trained in San Francisco and I've been acting most of my life. And uh, yeah, I'm just so excited about this play. This was something that James and I, we first did the reading for about six or seven months ago. And I think everyone involved, it, it just kind of struck a chord, decided to go for it. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. Um, so Nick, tell me a little bit about um, what you found so interesting when you did the first reading of Ronald Reagan Murdered My Mentors. Um, well, I'm a 45-year-old gay man who's Latino. I'm Mexican, half Mexican uh, culturally. And um, there's not many roles that have come out for that type. <laughs> and so it was something that I connected with immediately in terms of who he was. Um, there are many aspects of him that I've, I've never experienced, but uh, specifically in the play, there's a, 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 I have a monologue where I, I describe the, the death of my Tio, my uncle, or seeing him before he died of AIDS, of complications to HIV and AIDS. And the same, almost the same exact thing happened to me with my my cousin my mother's first cousin who was basically um like an, an uncle figure to me and he was one of the first gay men that i ever knew and uh introduced me to so many things um and i think also i was so young at the time when it happened i was probably 12 or 13 when he died and i i was brought up in the world of aids um and there was things that he kind of just gave me that I didn't, it wasn't until I was older, I realized, oh, I think he must've known that I was gay. So this idea of knowing about growing up in HIV during that time, um, knowing someone close to me who lost it, and also being a man now, kind of dealing with the aftermath of it, uh, it just, there was just no way I couldn't be a part of it. Thank you. Um, so we're talking today with uh, Nick Hungola and with James Dixon about the new play at uh, Fuse Theater Ensemble, Ronald Reagan Murdered My Mentors. Um, the play describes a uh, the story of the AIDS crisis from the perspective of where we stand now as the first generation to be able to authentically live as ourselves while carrying the weight of an entire generation decimated by the ineptitude and hate of American politics and policy. So what does that, um, what does that show description mean to each of you, James and Nick? Like, um, does that pretty well sum up like what the play's about? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, 
God, it was funny. I was just um, the other my other castmate Anthony was just here over at my house, and we were going over lines together and just discussing the play, um, the abandonment of of the 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 government. It's something that I don't think. I mean, of course, it was horrible, but wasn't surprising. Um, there's, I, I guess, what I was thinking of is th- there is that aspect of the play that's very blatant. It's in the title. For me, a lot of it has to do with the loneliness that can come from this, from the isolation. We see these characters talk to each other through a telephone line, and they don't ever. They see each other later on. But there is something about the reaching out. There is something that has happened because of HIV and AIDS that has kind of shattered us. And we're slowly but surely trying to piece ourselves back together. So I, I kind of look at it from more of the emotional standpoint of it, um, if that makes sense. Um, that's where, I, as, as a performer, I'm, I'm, I, I take it mostly for me. Thank you. What about you, James? Is that show description that's put out, does that pretty well for you describe like your experience of the play? Yeah, I think Nick wrapped it up pretty, pretty well. And it's, you know, there's, I mean, to be honest, there's some parts of the play that are um, just very intimate. And, um, and I call, I call it intimacy. Like it can be, (laughs) it can be very sexual at times. And, you know, as a person who is sex positive has experienced that has experienced sex positive through a black lens um and feeling isolated and feeling like i didn't have anyone to talk to it's uh, there's certain parts of it that feel like a celebration um of of our lives uh, of our lifestyle as well um i love that part of it i love how that celebration translates into the way we work together and collaborate on this piece um i can't tell you you know when you start a show like this it's less about the job and, and more about getting getting the right people in the room together. And it's not just a group of actors and artists and designers. There's, a, I mean, a ton of experience, um, just lived experience of people on this team, people, I mean, not including Nick and in, in this crew that have lived this life. There's certain conversations we just don't have to have with each other when, when we're, when we're, when we're in a room together, because we we're, we're building community in so many ways. Um, and I think that's something that I love about this piece that's brought us all together, um, that we can have these deeper conversations and it feels more like an exchange, you know. Thank you. Uh, we've just been joined by Rusty Tennant um, with Fuse Theater Ensemble. Uh, Rusty, welcome to uh, KBU. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I appreciate y'all letting me be here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Rusty, so you um, are helping to put on this most recent production at Fuse, um, Ronald Reagan Murdered My Mentors. Can you tell us, uh, first of all, if you could introduce yourself and then tell us a little bit about Fuse Theater Ensemble. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, my name is Rusty Tennant. Uh, I use they, them pronouns. Uh, I am the artistic director of Fuse Theater Ensemble and the producing artistic director of the Outright Theater Festival. Um, and I'm also the set designer for uh, um, this play and have been also working as an associate with sound design as well. Um, uh, I have a long history with this play. Julian is, uh, the playwright is an old friend of mine. Probably wouldn't appreciate me saying old, but a friend of a long time. Um, uh, uh, and we've produced a lot of Julian's work over the years in, out, in the Outright Theater Festival. We started with Man Boobs probably 10 or 11 years ago. Um, We've also produced readings of Animals Commit Suicide, which was a piece that Julian did about bug chasing. We produced um, uh, uh, Locusts Have No King, which is uh, 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 a story about homosexuality in the Catholic Church. Um, And we produced a full production of uh, uh, Oso Fabuloso and the Barebacks, which is Julian's solo show that uh, ran for quite a while uh, with the public and has toured um, uh, in many different places and and really kind of ignited Julian's star over the past couple years. Uh, Julian's star is definitely on the rise in terms of being a sought after playwright. And so we're super proud to be a a part of that rise um, and to have been a place where Julian could workshop and 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 incubate plays uh, of his that he's been working on for for um, you know well over a decade now. Um, and this piece 
uh julie and i have been talking about this piece for a number of years uh at one point in time um uh julian mentioned to me that he didn't know if it was ever even going to be possible for this show to be produced especially at larger theaters largely because of the title largely because of the the subject matter and i just kind of looked at julian and i said well it's exactly the type of play that we like to produce so um, <laughs> yeah. uh, i've been in the different readings of the show as an actor um at, at, at different points in time so i have a vested interest in um in the characters in this piece uh i myself was diagnosed hiv positive in 2006 um and so uh it, it has always been a very difficult decision as an artistic director how much as an artistic director of a queer company how much of our our programming do we want to focus on what many of us refer to as the trope of the aids play um, and we really haven't done much of it. Um, we've maybe done a couple of readings here and there that that might have brought up AIDS or HIV, um, but largely we've we've shied away um, for two reasons. It allows people outside our community to um, fetishize our traumas, and 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 uh, I didn't necessarily want to be a part of that. It also a lot of times causes people within our community to have to relive trauma, um, and so I didn't necessarily want to uh, take on that. But with this piece. It has a very different perspective on it. it has a very different um, uh, uh, view than than a lot of pieces uh, that I, that we might call an AIDS play. Uh, it speaks about us, the generation that exists now, and how we carry the weight of all of those dead souls, all of the people who we lost, all of the mentors that we lost. Um, and I thought that was a really new and fresh approach to telling these types of stories. And and so I've always been very interested in bringing it to the stage. And um, after we did our reading last year for Outright, James mentioned to me that, that he really wanted to direct this play. And I thought, hmm, that's, that's perfect. Let's do that. That's delicious. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much for giving that um, sense of context. Um, I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, you, you mentioned two things that made you feel a little bit reluctant to do a, you know, an AIDS play. And... Um, you know, I, I was just wondering if, uh, what is it about this play that you feel kind of overcomes the challenges of, you know, trying to avoid those those gullies where you don't want to kind of fall into either one of those rudders that you mentioned? What, what's different about this play? Um, uh, I, I think probably to me it's the uh, um, uh, the joy, the the queer joy that I, I feel um, is is. Is told through this script. It's also the ownership of our sexuality. Um, uh, it gets into a little bit of the psychology of our sexuality, and I enjoy that. Um, it's not. It's not uh, uh, focusing on the 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 illness, the process of death. It's not focusing on the loss of uh, a singular character in the show. Um, it doesn't take us through that journey. And so those things felt very different than say like, you know, an as is or an angels in America or um, normal heart or whatever the case may be. Uh, uh, those seem, those definitely told very specific stories about people who were, who were living with AIDS in that time. And what's interesting about this piece is our main characters aren't necessarily living with AIDS, but they're living with the specter of AIDS and HIV. Um, and I think that's the way that um, many of us in, in, in our uh, uh, current state uh, live with HIV, especially since PrEP has been introduced. There's a specter of HIV um, that exists in our, our community as well. So I felt those were new approaches to it. I also think that this piece in particular really delves into um, a lot of the beautiful components uh, some of it can be seen as very dark and very dirty if you want, but it, it, what's so beautiful about what Julian has written, and he's he's been specific about this, is that that they should should walk a line, and and uh, you know one side of that line may very well be dirty and nasty, but the other side of that line is really gorgeous and beautiful. Um, and I think our choreographer uh, Kimba Shannon has has been you know brought in to really kind of illustrate those physically. There's a lot of music, there's a lot of dance. There's just a lot of celebration of queer, queerness in this. And so um, even the moments where Ronald Reagan is speaking, uh, you know, uh, text in this, we've, we, we've, we've really focused on making that queer um, and not letting the, the cis-hetero kind of dominate those moments. Oh, yeah. 
We're talking today with Nick Hongola, James Dixon, and Rusty Tennant about the new play, Ronald Reagan Murdered My Mentors. It's a new play by Julian Jimenez, and it's playing at Fuse Theater Ensemble. Uh, Rusty, can you tell us some of the details? Uh, when is it playing? Uh, where can people find out about it? Um, that sort of thing. Absolutely. We run uh, February 9th through the end of the month. Um, looking right now at a calendar because I don't have it in front of me. There it is through the 26th. Um, uh, Thursday, Fridays, and Saturdays at 7.30. Sundays, we perform at 3 p.m. It's at the Backdoor Theater, which is behind Common Grounds Coffee Shop. We're doing subversive art behind that coffee shop. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, it's kind of hard to find, but you do enter through the coffee shop. Uh, it's 4319 Southeast Hawthorne Boulevard. Um, it used to be the home of, uh, in case people are wondering, it used to be the home of Defunct Theater, uh, but they're uh, currently on hiatus and we took over about a year and a half ago. Thank you. So, James, I'd like to come back to you. I'd like to ask you, what does it mean to you um, to be someone who's kind of carrying this, like, as as Rusty was, was saying earlier, kind of part of the purpose of the play is to sort of own and to carry the legacy of, you know, the all of the people who have passed away from HIV, like somehow to be an active agent in owning that relationship. What does that mean to you? Uh, it's a, I mean, it's a huge responsibility. I, you know, I, I, I'll be honest, I walk into rehearsal every day, not necessarily nervous, but just remaining open um, and making sure that I allow people in. I, I think one thing that's hard about being a director is thinking that you have all the answers and that's something I defi definitively don't have. Um, and I have to remain open to collaborating to, with everyone in the space because it's just so much wisdom. Um, there's so much wisdom in, in our bodies. There's wisdom in these words. Um, it's important to me that we don't leave anything out. It's important to me that I hold myself accountable as well. Um, and that can be a really hard position to take on when you want to be responsible for or stewarding something like this and um, being in a position of, you know, as a leader, how do you how do you allow space for people to have voices and ideas? Um, that's probably the hardest part about this work, um, but I, I feel very honored to be part of it. And um, I've, it's been a huge learning experience for me as well. Thank you. Uh, Nick, what about you? What does it mean to you to be carrying, kind of holding that space of the people who, I mean, have, have passed away and you're you're kind of, you're here telling your story and also in some ways, I guess, maybe telling their story. Yeah. Um, wow. <clears throat> I like to continue with what Rusty said, like a certain amount of joy to this. Um, there is the line, um, this character that I play lost uh, walks the line of of acceptance and of fear and of trying to to really find connection in this world and and I, I just want to kind of I don't know keep that joy and, and hope alive because when we, we do talk about you know there's references to people who are no longer with us and um, personally, it means a lot to me to to make sure that this doesn't get forgotten, but that we're not wallowing in, there is the truth of the horrors of it, but that we also know that, that you know, these people, a lot of them lost their lives doing what they loved and loving people. And that that wasn't a bad thing. And uh, I just want that to be remembered. I, I mean, as it's, that's it for me. <laughs> Just don't want it to, to go away. The joy, mm -hmm. the joy of it and, and the truth of it. Mm -hmm. How Do you think that there, I mean, is there a way in which like queer culture has kind of reestablished its footing? And is this like sort of maybe part of a new assertiveness, a new like awareness of maybe there are things that are in queer culture that were kind of lost for a while or maybe not celebrated as much as they needed to be that are sort of coming back. They're kind of being reawakened. Is, is there any of that in the play? A lot of public sex. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I've, I've been, personally as a performer, I've been 
my boundaries have been tested as and i'm like whoop we gotta we gotta dive in first just go for it you know hold out your breath and just dive in uh sex uh public affection not being scared of that um and enjoying the kind of sex that you enjoy whether it be you know at a cruising spot or or on the telephone phone sex or something like that like there's just something about that <laughs> that i i think you know i see all a lot of these boys a lot of men just or gay people queer people just you know having the time of their lives with their sex lives and not this there is no fear and that's just great i love it and like there's a line in the play where I'm asked by the chorus, are you afraid of dying of it? And I flat out say, no, you know, I'm, I'm told, you know, talk about trust. I don't need trust. I have prep. Um, there's that, that I think obviously the, the generation now gets to really kind of, kind of bask in. I'm, I'm happy for it. I get to bask in it too. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I would say yeah. probably the, the joy of sex. Great, thank you. What about you, James? Do you, do you find there's any sort of reawakening of what, what, what I'm trying to kind of get at is like, I, I mean, I think that in the 70s, especially, I mean, I think that there was this um, just real blossoming of like queer identity um, within the public sphere. And I think that a lot of people felt like after the AIDS crisis, there was kind of this push to more sort of normalize queer identities and make queer seem as something that's kind of more normative and palatable to hetero, like to heteronormative culture. Like, and that was part of maybe the push behind so many things that were about normalizing queer identities, such as gay marriage. Not that there's anything wrong with that, because that's a really great thing, but it's like, is there like, we're, we're, we're looking 40 years past HIV, is there now a point where as like queer men's culture people begin to like really just kind of reclaim some of the discoveries that were first kind of made back in the 70s is this is there any of that going on now or is, is am I just in outer space with my question no you're not in outer space we're right here on the same planet right here in Portland and you are absolutely right I think uh there's definitely a reawakening that's happening um well, and, 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 you know, what I really love about it now is like, so I was telling some younger kids, I was like, just within our lifetime, you, we weren't able to hold hands with each other, you know, in public, you know, it's, uh, and that's changed dramatically. Um, I, I think, I think there is definitely a reawakening. I, I, what I, I mean, the things that are happening in this play are things that are normal to me. So why can't, you know, why can't we have a celebration of these things? Why can't, we need to normalize this language and, and normalize the conversations behind it. Um, and I think we're seeing a lot more of that, especially in a city like Portland. There's a lot of parties that are happening that have been happening for a long time that are all about queer liberation, queer celebration. And to be honest, we're not seeing much of that in other cities. Um, just being queer producers, when you think about the work that we do, I've had to get on Zoom calls with other queer producers across the country because they're all the only folks doing this work where they're at. And there's other folks doing work here in Portland. I don't want to say we're the only ones, but you know, there's definitely a, a pull for for normalizing this work and normalizing the, normalizing this our lifestyles. We don't have to we don't have to water it down. It's one of the most important notes I can ever give to an actor is like we don't have to water it down for anybody. People can sit here and bear witness to what we provide to what we're showing them. And and I think we just have to normalize that. And how is how is queer pride um, overlaid with other kinds of pride within the player within your lives? How is the movement for Black Lives and the movement for like racial reckoning? How is that translated within? Does, does that come up at all in your work? I mean, as a as a work that's primarily composed of BIPOC performers doing a subject that for a long time people kind of didn't see the fact that people of color were overwhelmingly, you know, victims of HIV. I mean, it was for a long time, it was seen as some sort of a white man 
dying, which is not to diminish at all the suffering, but I, I think that in the current moment, I think that there's more acknowledgement of how, you know, how devastating this was for communities of color and how like recovering from that um, must just be an incredibly liberating and joyful experience. It is, you know, I you tell people we have to have people at the table as early as possible having these conversations, much like when we put on these shows, like when we invite people in, in the conversation early, we're, we're, we're showing them that we have an investment in their lives. You know, a lot of, you know, in my day job, I, I focus on black youth suicide prevention, and um, that can be a little controversial. I'm the only person in the state with that job title. <laughs> And so when people hear about that, they're like, well, what, why is there a need for black, you know, for black youth attention? I was like, well, because there hasn't been a, a no one's really looked deeper up until in the past, you know, when you've got folks that are, when you've got mostly cis, white, heteronormative folks at the table, controlling the dollars, controlling the narrative, relieving other perspectives out of these conversations and people are essentially dying. People are dying because they're not at the table. I think that's something that has to change. Um, and I love being at, in a position where we can shift the paradigm, which is part of our mission at, 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 uh, at Fuse Theater Ensemble, really shifting that and showing people that we have agency and that we can lead um, from a position of power. Thank you. Um, so the the play let's let's talk about the play a little bit then how does how does the play open up where uh, why is it about what the title is ronald reagan murdered my pictures what role is the reagan administration playing this and just for kind of maybe some of our younger listeners can you even explain what did ronald reagan even have to do with any of this in the first place did you want to tackle this one uh, rusty sure absolutely <laughs> i got some things to say about this um uh, uh, so yeah, Ronald Reagan, um, former president during the eighties, during the AIDS crisis, um, literally did nothing for, for a number of years, far too long. Uh, and when they finally did something, it was, it was, it was, you know, basically in name only and really no real action. Uh, uh, in many ways, as the play illustrates, um, Ronald Reagan, and particularly his wife, Nancy Reagan, blamed gays and queer culture for um, all, uh, this is the, the dawn of the religious right um, as well, or at least the stronghold of re the religious right um, in conservatism. And so uh, uh, they, they really kind of got America to believe that this scourge was was something that we deserved because we were perverts and we were nasty and we were going about sex in all of the wrong ways and really trying to to make the case that this was something that we brought upon ourselves um, as opposed to putting money and effort into figuring out ways to try to stop this uh, from not only affecting our uh, community as a queer community, but then also obviously growing to affect so many other places in the world, including an entire continent of Africa um, in such massive and astounding ways. And so um, did Ronald Reagan personally himself by his own hand murder anyone? I don't know if that's what the play is trying to say one way or the, uh, the other. I don't know Ronald Reagan well enough to know. But what I can definitely say in certainty is that Ronald Reagan's inaction uh, during a time where we definitely needed action to take place led to the death deaths of millions and millions of people, largely gay men. Um, uh, and so it is, it, 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 you know, there's a real, uh, as we've talked about already in this, there's that real responsibility to make sure that that this portion of the story is told uh, you know, history is a lie that we all agree to, right? But it's also a lie that gets created by the winners. Um, and and unfortunately, we in my lifetime have had to really, really fight to be the winners in this argument and to get to earn the right to tell the truth about what happened during that time. And I would venture to say that a vast majority of straight culture doesn't even have an understanding of how instrumental Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan were in 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 the the decimation of an entire generation of gay people. 
Um, it was because of the work of people like Act Act Up and Larry Kramer and 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 those types of people that that we even made any sort of headway. And I was working at Paz Magazine in the early '90s, uh, early to mid '90s, and and I just remember you know watching in. There was we were probably a staff of about 25 people, and during the time that I worked there, a good portion of our staff, probably close to half of our staff, was dying at that time, not necessarily from from the virus, but from the complications of the medicines that we were being administered in order to hopefully combat this virus. Again, largely due to the fact that we were being we, we were left to, to our own devices to try to be able to treat this. People were sharing medicines, people were using cancer medicine, whatever they could to try to figure out how to treat this, but we had little to no governmental support behind it. Um, and as we've seen in this past pandemic, that is actually super important, that governmental support, the government acting on it as soon as possible. And yes, the last pandemic wasn't perfect, we can all agree with that. But what we did witness was a government step up and try to do things at least. And, and living through the 80s and HIV and AIDS, that was not something that Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan were at all willing to do. What is it about the kind of organizing that ACT UP did that was so effective? What what was, I mean, people, we, we, we hear about ACT UP a lot and ACT UP isn't really around anymore. So like, I mean, for those of us who were around when we saw ACT UP, what did ACT UP do that was so unique? Uh, they 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 acted as a place and a resource for people they allowed for uh, people to have hospice care when their partners weren't allowed to be able to be part of it they they made sure that people were taken care of in terms of hospice care they made sure people got meds they acted as a medicine repository for people um and and yes so there was that kind of community support, but probably like the most important thing they did is never shut up. They literally would never let anybody talk them down. They would never let anybody shut them up. They just kept coming. And 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 they kept coming with a vim and a vigor that said, you're not pushing us away. You're never going to get us out of here. We are going to have our way on this. And eventually, like you said, at this stage of the game, you know, ACT UP isn't necessarily the same thing that it was. And if it is, it, you know, if it, even if it still does exist, it, it, it's, it's certainly morphed. We are now living in a society where, you know, when I, when I was diagnosed HIV positive in 2006, I graduated into a medicated HIV society. Um, I, I, you know, I went on meds as soon as I possibly could. Um, these sorts of benefits are the sorts of things that we could have gotten to in the 90s and saved millions of lives as opposed to waiting another decade before these sorts of things started to come along. And ACT UP was so instrumental in that because they were literally the barking dog. They were the annoying child. They were the person who would not let people say, you don't deserve this. You're not worthy of this. You perverts don't get what we all are, have a right to. They, they were the ones who sat there and, and held sit-ins. They uh, uh, protested at every, you know, every turn. They were absolutely the moving and shaking force underneath all of this. We're talking today with uh, Rusty Tennant, um, 
James Dixon and Nick Hungola about the new play, Ronald Reagan Murdered My Mentors. Um, Nick, I haven't had a chance to talk to you in a few minutes. Um, is there anything that you've heard in the last few minutes that you'd like to comment on? Um, oh. And if not, I, I have a question for you. Um, no, I mean, I'm loving everything I'm hearing. <laughs> it is good enough, but we, yes. Um, no, no, you can please answer, ask another question, I'm, I'm down. Oh, sure. Um, how does how does theater and the act of storytelling help to produce queer liberation, to help create joy, and how does it help to process trauma? I think uh, for a lot of it, for me, it starts with identification. Um, do I see myself on stage? Um, and for uh, as an actor, I mean, I've been doing this for quite a while. I used to, uh, gosh, I always wanted to be, you know, the lead or I wanted to seem straight. Um, you know, that's, I think a, a lot of things that a lot that uh, queer actors go through is when you sound effeminate, how do I get rid of this? And, um, and now it seems like effeminacy in a man is celebrated on stage. Who I am doesn't matter. We're, you know, you make the characters you want to see. So representation is huge for me. <laughs> can, I, can I jump in on there? Uh, a Please. Little bit? I know I've been Please. talking lots and I don't mean to, but um, I do have uh, 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 the theater acted as the safe space for our stories to be told while the crisis that while the epidemic was happening no other medium opened up like theater opened up for us to be able to tell our authentic stories and so there is a real like history of theater helping and 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 giving visibility to the this particular cause of hiv and aids and and what we learned i think in that period is it also gave us people visibility and like nick was so uh, you know was talking about there we we now live in a society where uh, you know nick and i i'm a little older than nick but we're of a similar generation yes. and um and 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 i spent so much of my life trying to to normalize myself you know what i mean um it, when everything in me knew that i was not normal and and that i i wanted to be not normal i wanted to be different like the and and yet i still felt all of this outstanding pressure and so the beauty of plays like this and the plays of, of our history uh, particularly as a queer culture is that it gave us an opportunity to not only see ourselves but to explore our own psychology um and and the reasons why we have been put in places that we've been put and i really love that about ronald reagan murdered my mentors Julian makes a very clear distinction that, that you can't blame queer people for going into the corners, dark corners, or into the alleys, or into the, the piers, or out on the piers, and having sex, because you pushed us there. You're the ones who made us real or think that our sex was dirty and it was relegated to those those places. And what we managed to do, what we always managed to do, is we found the beauty in that. We found the ways to make that our own and how to own it and how to make it something that we love and we celebrate about ourselves. And that's what I think this play really has done beautifully uh, is, is really show that internal, this thing that we've all had guilt and, 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 and shame and all that other uh, stuff that surrounds queerness and our sex and everything that we do. We now have works of art that are being created that show that actually all of that stuff is really, really beautiful. <laughs> it, yeah. it sounds like there's a lot of sex in this play. I hope it's good. <laughs> I mean, it's a trigger warning if you're at all. Okay. But I would also say that, like, what we're doing is we're, we're handling it artistically, right? We're not doing live simulated sex in front of people. We're we're stylizing it. it it's it's centered around movement. It's it's centered around artistic and interpretations. So, sex is a part of being a queer. And, and we hope that through pieces like this and through pieces that are going to be written, you know, in the future, that that we stop feeling shame around sex and because we do it differently or we do it in different places and that we start to really celebrate it. Yeah. 
That sounds great. Sure. <laughs> no, it's just for me, just to piggyback, it's all for representation, representation. I want to put myself on stage. I want to show a big, huge of the, the queer population that you're here, you're being seen, and we're putting you on stage. And I just, I love that about that. That's what I want. And that's why I think the power of it is too, is you see yourself on stage, you don't feel like you're alone. You don't feel excluded. By any means. And I hope that that's what this play is doing. It's opening up the doors even wider that the, all kinds of people will look at this and be like, that's who I am. And that's how I like sex. And I shouldn't be ashamed of it. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, James, we haven't heard from you in a little bit and we're getting pretty close to the end of the interview. Is there anything that um, you haven't shared with us yet today or that people would like to maybe know more about you or about your role in the play or about the play that you'd, li you'd like to share? Uh, I, I, well, actually, no, not, not too much. I feel like, uh, I feel really grateful to have spent this time with you today. And I, more than anything, like Nick and, uh, Rusty have just said, I, I want people to show up and feel like there's something familiar here for them. Like when they walk, when people walk into our spaces, I want them to feel like they don't have to translate. They don't have to, you know, everything is just like natural for them. Um, so that's, that's what I'm looking for this this play is pretty dark. There are some parts that are pretty funny and pretty intimate and pretty personal, but I want people to feel like they're, that they belong here. And this is something they can take home and chew on when they leave. So um, thanks for having us today. Thank so James, just as a reminder, what is your role in the play? I'm the director for the play and I'm the producer artistic director for Blackout. Wonderful. And can you tell us a little bit about Blackout? What is Blackout? Um, that's a complicated question. It's a, a, you know, a lot of people would think it's 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 all about black culture, but it's it's an it's an intersection of BIPOC storytelling. You know, one thing I love about this play is we have a very multi multicultural cast. Um, we want to show people that black people, brown folks, um, have we're we're kingsters too. We have stories to tell too, and there's there's deeper layers that go into the intersections of these identities. So that's pretty much what it's all about just bringing the right people into the room to tell our, tell our stories and be seen because um, our bodies are weaponized if you really think about it you know I tell people I'm a black man first because that's the first thing you see when I walk on stage so what do we do with these bodies when they're on stage how do we how do they move through space how do we portray them how do we how do we show people who we really are um, that's what I really love about blackout that sounds wonderful thank you so much um, Rusty, is there anything that you'd like to share? Um, because James is far too humble to sing his own accolades, I did want to point out that James, uh, 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 aside from being a an award-winning director, um, is also uh, recognized recently in American theater's uh, roll call as one of six emerging artists to watch. Um, uh, so we're very lucky and very proud to have James uh, uh, not only helming Blackout through Fuse, but also um, doing the work that that uh, that you know James and we all feel is extremely important for our community right now. Thank you. And uh, Nick, is there anything that we didn't get to today that you'd like to mention? Um, no. Just I guess to the audience of potential audience members, just. Uh, be prepared to be um, educated, <laughs> to maybe be shocked a little bit, um, and to have an open mind. Like this is something that has opened my mind. And I think that's a, one of the great things about art and theater is you get to experience something new. So have an open heart and open mind. You've got all to gain, nothing to lose. And uh, if, I could, if, if I could jump in also, I don't know if this was mentioned, but um, I think people should be aware that Fuse uh, actually has a very unique ticketing model. Um, we do not ask you to pay for a ticket. Uh, we, we allow people in uh, free of charge if that's what uh, people want to do. Um, we, we, we say our tickets are gay AF, which is an acronym for <laughs> give as your able friends. Um, it's a donation system. It's based on reciprocity. We don't want to set a price for people. People um, are obviously able, you know, uh, 
able to pay at different levels. And so we want to make sure that people have uh, that sort of accessibility to our theater. So uh, all you need to do is log on to www.fusetheaterensemble.com and click on the link and you just reserve your ticket. You don't have to pay anything there. If you decide you want to donate, there's a link to donate there, but there's also the opportunity to donate when you get to the show, or maybe you want to see the show first before you realize, before you think about how much money you want to give to it. So you can donate after you leave the show as well. You can always donate, but we just want people to come see the show. And so we try to make it as accessible as we can at all price points. Thank you. Um, so we've been talking today with James Dixon, director, Nick Hangola, an actor and Rusty Tennant um, with Fuse Theater Ensemble. Thank you so much for joining us talking about uh, Ronald Reagan murdered my mentors. And Rusty, just one last time, tell us again, when is it running and where can people go to find out about it? Yeah, thanks. It's February 9th through the 26th and that's Thursday through Fridays at 7.30 and Sundays at 3 p.m. And it's at the Backdoor Theater, which is behind Common Grounds Coffee Shop at 4319 Southeast Hawthorne Boulevard. Thanks, and um, James, if people would like to learn more about you or about Blackout, is there any um, social media or web presence that you have that people could uh, go to to learn learn more? Uh, most of what we have is, ho is hosted on FuseTheaterEnsemble.com, but I also have a website that's JamesRDixon.com, and I'll be updating with some more, um, with some media from the show there in the coming weeks. Thanks. And Nick, if people want to find out more about you or learn about your work, is there some place they can go to find out more about you? Sure. You can follow me on Instagram. I'm Nico77, lowercase N-I-C-C-O-7-7. And yeah, I'll be posting more about the show as we come up and taking photos of rehearsals. So I'll be hopefully getting some stuff out with their permission, of course, right? <laughs> Great. Great. Well, thank you all so much for joining us today on KBU, and uh, uh, have, have a great run of your show. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks. Transgender people don't live here. I've never met anyone who's transgender. I swear I don't know someone who's transgender. Transgender and non-binary people like me hear this all the time. But according to the HRC Foundation, there are more than 2 million transgender people in the United States. We live in every community across this country. You might be surprised to hear that there are more transgender and non-binary people in the United States than there are. Starbucks, McDonald's, and Walmart locations combined. In fact, if you put us all together, there'd be more non-binary and transgender folks than the populations of DC, or Nebraska, or Maine, or Idaho, or West Virginia. As a matter of fact, 15 states have a lower population than the amount of trans folks in the U.S. So here are a few things to keep in mind. You don't always know when a person is trans. But we're your neighbors, your co-workers, your students, your customers, and even your friends and family. We exist in every culture, todas las culturas, throughout human history. And while we're more visible than ever before, sometimes you just don't see us. So when you hear about politicians pushing forward discriminatory bills, know this, these bills address problems that aren't even real. Problems that don't actually exist. But we do. 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 And we need your support.
Hi, this is Emma. Um, I am a co-host of Transpositive, and I'm also the current president of the board of directors here at KBU. At KBU, we prove every day that people-powered radio has the ability to bring us together across distances and give us hope when we feel despair. Your friends at KBU want to remind you that generosity has the same power. Join thousands of KBU supporters from all around the world, and let's rally together to build stronger communities. If you can, just go to kboo.fm slash give or text kboo to this number 44321. And thanks so much for your support of KBU Community Radio. Tune in into KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM on 